0: Last week, I'm also grateful for uh, Brother Dan. Brother Dan, back there, I see you in the corner. Thank you for preaching on biblical counseling. And I'm grateful for Dan and Vera being a good tag team partner as they've kind of been spiriting this uh, endeavor for Evergreen SGV. So grateful for that. And this is a a massive pillar that we're praying for to be erected in the life of Evergreen SGV. Where we're able to minister the word, get into discipleship in the hard places. The hard places and this is where it does, it does take a lot of love it takes a lot of courage to get there and I believe more equipped we are with the word, the more confident we are just to minister the word as God intended for it to be done so thank you brother and today we're still in the hard place you know in some ways it gets really hard First Corinthians five is a very challenging portion of scripture in some ways if this wasn't if we were just sequentially going down the scriptures this may, a pastor may be tempted to kind of go on a different topic. This is one of those parts of the scripture where as my teaching or preaching profs have said this is the one of the beauties of sequential exposition where you just march down the text and the Lord providentially brings up topics that as a church family we need to talk about. Right? This is this is it. And so today we're continuing on our church matters series in the series of holiness right, holiness, to be set apart, we are a special nation, a holy nation, a special group set apart for God, because our God is holy, we're called to be holy, and the, Paul is addressing a massive issue, I'm telling you, this topic's going to cause you to blush a little bit, right? this is a massive issue that Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church, and we're going to talk about the topic of church discipline, church discipline, so what is church discipline? Church discipline, just to be clear, is the final step in church restoration. And we've covered church restoration in our Back to Church Basics series where Jesus uh, uh, just gives us instruction on how to restore a sinning brother or sister. This is important because we're not in heaven yet. We're not staring at our Lord yet. So we need to be able to help one another be holy. Holy. And uh, so let me just give you, read Matthew 18. And by the way, this is Jesus' first instruction to the church. This is how important this uh, concept or this idea of church restoration is to our world. This is the first instruction given given by Jesus to the church. And this is the steps that the Lord gives us. Matthew 18, this will give us good context as we go into uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Jesus says, if in Matthew 18, 15... If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Meaning, you see your brother or sister in sin, a professing believer. You just go to him discreetly, privately. No one else needs to know. It's between you, the brother or sister, and the Lord. And good news. This person repents. That's it. Done. Never. Never need to bring that up necessarily again. But if he doesn't listen, he or she doesn't listen. Verse 16 chronicles step number two but if he does not listen to you take one or two more with you so basically you're bringing more reinforcements to help this sinning brother or sister to repent so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed two or three come he said look we know brother or sister so-and-so confront to you about this this is a real issue and if and the bible says if they if if he repents that's it Praise God, that's step number two. Now, step one and two, this is a series of weeks and months of prayer now. This isn't just week one to week two. This takes some time. There's a lot of grace. There's a lot of opportunity for this person to repent. Now, step three gets harder. If he or she refuses to listen to them, then you bring in the whole reinforcement of the church. Tell it to the church. Tell to the church so that every brother and sister at Evergreen SGV could uh, pray for this person, appeal to this person, to, find, to repent, to find more hope in the gospel, right? And so that step three is a very serious thing if we ever get there, right? Hopefully we don't have to, but uh, it happened in, in the church in, uh, in Corinth. Now, this is what we're covering today, step number four. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, this is an unrepentant person. Even when the whole church is making an appeal to repent, this person goes, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm okay. Bible says, let him be to you as a, ta- a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? This treat him like a non-believer. Um, there are serious concerns about their genuineness in the Lord. So treat him as a non-believer. This is church discipline. Step number four. And we're going to learn more about this step today. And so if you're able to, let's uh, open up the 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going, to, we're going to read through the whole chapter. It's a short chapter. And then if you have your phones, pull up your phones. If you have your Bibles, open up your Bibles. We'll be at 1 Corinthians 5. And if you're able to, we rise here to honor God's word. If you're able to. If you're not able to, please stay, remain seated, even at home. Let's be, get in the practice of honoring God's word as we rise. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Brace yourself now. The Lord says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not e- exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Verse 2, You have become arrogant, have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, and with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I didn't at all all mean with the uh, immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Verse 11. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler or not, not even to eat with such a one, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. God judges the world. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We trust your word is truth. We believe in the word. The Bible is central to our lives. Thank you for giving us truth through the scriptures, Lord. I pray that your spirit will allow uh, me to preach your word faithfully and with power. I pray your spirit will minister the word into our hearts so that we would love you more. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I told you, that's a that's an earful right there, isn't it? And um, the topic of church discipline. Church discipline. How important is church discipline? Is this one of those things where, you know, Rocky, maybe we don't need to mess around with that. That could cause a little bit of uh, tension in our church. It could be messy. It's expensive. Do we really need to go down this road, right? Well, John Calvin, one of the great reformers during the Reformation, described the bare bones of what, it, what a church is characterized by. John Calvin, all right? John Calvin said this in the, in the 1500s. The bare minimum for a church to be considered a biblical church needs to be characterized by these three things. Number one, the faithful preaching of the Bible, meaning is the Bible taught and preached in the church? It means it's not my idea, not culture, not the worldly wisdom, but is the Bible opened up and taught? That's mark number one. Mark number two, the faithful administration of the sacraments. What is that? What are our sacraments? We observe too that the Bible commands us to do. Uh, baptism, which we did a, like a, several weeks ago. That was phenomenal. Baptism. And then communion, the Lord's table, right? We observe communion the first Sunday of every month, where we're to take communion to affirm our commitment to Christ, and that He is with us, and that we are with Him. Now, the third thing John Calvin said, this may surprise you, is the faithful ministry of church discipline. Church discipline. I mean, you could have Bible taught and no sacraments and. You don't really have a church, so that's really a fellowship or a Bible study, which is a good thing, but not the church. You could have the Bible taught and preached and still observe sacraments of baptism and communion and have no church discipline. That's still not a church because we're not holding one another to the standard that God has called us to. We're not holding us to the standard that we said we would be about when we trusted ourselves with the message of the gospel. Right? Our God is holy. We're just saying it. Therefore, we're holy. This is what we said yes to. All right? And we're going to understand this. So, why would anyone want to be a part of a church that practices church discipline? That just sounds intense. That just sounds, is that so uh, uh, militant? That's just so hard, right? Why would we want to join? A church like that? Well, we're going to take a look at the four W's of church discipline to examine that question. The four W's. So, the n- title of the sermon is The Four W's of Church Discipline. And if you want, you can follow along in our church app uh, to take your notes and to kind of document our, the Corinthian series, and you can email it to yourself afterwards. So, point number one, or first W, is when, the word when. And point number one, when do we do church discipline? When do we do church discipline? All right? I have three words that, uh, to, to, for you guys to fill in. Three words. This is when we're to do church discipline. When it's outward. All right. I'll, I'll explain both all three of them. Significant, outward. Significant, all right? If you're writing notes down. And thirdly, when the sin is unrepentant. Unrepentant is the third word. Okay, so let me just explain. Jonathan Lehman of Nine Marks. So I, I think I showed this book before. Jonathan Lehman is a man who's part of this ministry called Nine Marks. Nine Marks of a Healthy Church is, in essence, what they're about. They're about ch- the establishing healthy church uh, life. So Nine Marks has put out little, these little vignettes, these little books, readable. And this orange book is called Church Discipline, and Jonathan Lehman writes in this. And I've also heard him on uh, talks and things like that. And um, Jonathan Lehman is the one that I leaned on to get... These three things, three marks outward, significant, and un- unrepentant. Number one, outward. What does that mean? That means that sin is observable. This means that it's knowable. It's not like you're looking to have x-ray vision, spiritual x-ray vision, and you look into somebody's heart and judging them. This is obvious. You could see and hear uh what's going on. And so, right here, as we look to the text, the Bible says it is actually reported. Verse 1, it is actually reported. That means everyone's talking about it. Everyone's seeing this lifestyle. Everyone can see it. No one really has to guess. You could see it. It is actually reported. This is a widely known fact that there's some kind of a sin going on in the church of Corinth. This, no one has to guess. Number 2, it's significant. You know, and Jonathan Lehman would say something like this, I don't know how you could continue on with this lifestyle and consider yourself to be a Christian. And there's serious concerns. Like Christians don't act that way. It doesn't mean Christians don't make mistakes. I make mistakes. But you're actually good with it. And that's the concern. Let me just read this text here out of verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. I mean, this is a significant sin. Immorality in the original language is porneia. You could guess what words that we get from that today. Pornea. All right, so pornea was basically any type of sex outside of marriage. Right, think about it. There's a litany of them. We understand that we're bombarded by these topics constantly in the news and social media. And the Bible says right here that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, even amongst the non believers. All right, I mean, this would cause Las Vegas to blush to what we're talking about here, right? This is so serious. Where Even non-believers would be like, wow, okay. Right? Even they would be shocked. This is a very significant thing. Third thing, it's unrepentant. The Bible says right here that someone has, that means active, present, has his father's wife. What? That's porneia right there. Has means this is an ongoing thing. This is a lifestyle. This is an unrepentant situation. Now, just to maybe perhaps provide a little context, father's wife, that's probably not this man's actual biological mother. Probably, probably his father's second wife. Wife, mother, wife, my original wife might have died. There might have been a divorce. But somehow... This man is involved with his father's wife. This is unacceptable. This is clearly unacceptable in the Old Testament. The Bible talks about this as being an unacceptable relationship. Even the world will know this is crazy. This is unacceptable. We don't do this. Right, so this is an unrepentant situation where this man is living this way, is not repenting. Repenting means doing an about face or a change of mind. I'm going to abandon this way of life in terms of following God. But this person evidently has not done that. And verse 2 here, it says, you have become arrogant. This word you is in the plural. So Paul's not just talking to one person, like the pastor of the church or anything like that. He's talking you as in the Corinthian church, plural, you plural. Meaning church discipline is a very communal thing. Everyone needs to be involved in this. And you may be wondering, man, I don't want to get involved with this. And so, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, You've done nothing because you've become arrogant. You've become prideful. Now, how, what does Paul mean about you've become arrogant? Like, what is he specifically talking to? Well, the good thing about sequential preachings, we've had context over the year, over the last couple of weeks and months as we go through Corinthians. The Corinthians, they prided themselves on worldly wisdom. Perhaps they're thinking, you know what? Tolerance is the virtue here of love. So, let's be tolerant. You add that in, you know what, God, I know what God says, but let's be tolerant. I think that's the way to go. That's what's pleasing to God. That's arrogant, all right? Or perhaps we know that the Corinthians were pretty much a shame, honor-based culture, or Corinth was like that. So the Corinthian church would operate on a shame and honor system. So in order to save face, they probably didn't want to get into that world. I'm not about that life. Right. This is going to be expensive. This is going to cause me to get messy. I like the idea that people keep saying we get along, we 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 love each other perfectly. That's arrogant. Saying putting off that perception, presenting on the face of the church that yeah we're fine, we have no issues. That's arrogance. That's pride. Pride causes us to be blind. Pride causes us to lose sight of what the essence of what church life is all about. Pride. Pride blinds us. So that was the first W. When do we do church discipline? When it's outward, when it's observable, when it's significant, and when it's an unrepentant situation. Let's go to the second W. Second W. Why is the next W. Why? Point number two. Why do we do church discipline? Why do we do church uh, discipline? The fill in the blank is restoration of the individual. We do it for restoration. We do it for restoration. Church is in the restoration business. This is why we're here. All of us are sinners saved by grace who are in Christ. This is why we're here. Sin. And God is in the restoration business. In essence, as we're out here or even online, out here, we're like a spiritual hospital, right? Right? At one point or another, we come in broken. Even right now, brothers and sisters, you may be sitting here or watching online, struggling and being dominated by some kind of a sin. This is a spiritual hospital. Verse 3, Paul, as his chief surgeon or the head surgeon of Corinth, said, hey, I've already judged this situation. I'm not here. I think he was in Ephesus at the time. I'm not here, but I'm here in spirit. I, I need to address this thing. This is something that we need to address. And so in verse 4, therefore, Paul goes at, with the highest level of authority. Verse 4, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Oh, you can't get any higher than that. This is Christ, the head of the church. This is the Christ, the creator of the universe. This is Christ who says, I'll be judging the living and the dead. This is Christ, the chief shepherd. So he comes with that level of authority when you are assembled, when the church is gathered, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. So Paul's coming with full authority. He's coming with the approval of God. And with the approval of his people, the church. And this is Paul's prescription, verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Deliver, this word has an idea of a judicial uh, uh, sentence. So Paul, as the judge... All right, judge the situation is horrible. Something needs to be done, and it's so serious that we need to do open-heart surgery here. This is more than taking some pills or just resting. We need to get in there and handle this. This is a very serious thing. So Paul goes to step number four of church restoration, church discipline, or excommunication, some people have called that back in the day. I mean, look at, it. Look at how many times he talks about it in verse 2 that this this one will be removed from your midst. Verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one over to Satan. Okay, verse verse 7, it talks about, you know, clean out the old leaven. Verse 9 talks about, I said not to associate with immoral people. Verse 11 talks about how, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Verse thirteen: Remove the wicked man from among your midst. I mean, this whole this whole chapter is about excommunication, very serious. Now you may be asking yourself, well, Pastor, we went over Matthew eighteen, and there was four steps. How come we? How come Paul jumps to step number four? Is that like a quantum leap? Did he skip a few steps? What happened? Step one, step two, step three, and before we get to step four, right? We would all want that. I would want that opportunity. I definitely would want that. But this was such a public thing. Paul has already addressed this in a previous letter that's not in the Bible. He says that I already wrote to you about this. This is such a widely thing where everyone's talking about it. No doubt, even perhaps people on the streets of Corinth are talking about this. There is the church that they say that they believe in God, but this is what's going on over there. It's just such a widely known thing. Paul was in another continent. He was in Ephesus, which is like in Turkey. This was in Greece. And somehow word travels back to him, but did you hear what's going on? What? This is widely known. We're beyond being discreet here at this point. Step one, two, and three is not there anymore. So it says, deliver such a one to Satan. What does this mean? Deliver such a one to Satan. First Timothy, Paul write, uses this term again, and, and, and he says, I have decided to deliver Hymenaeus and Alexander all right, to Satan. Why? So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. These are false teachers. God, uh, God allows these things to happen to correct us. To correct us. Matthew 18, 17 says, right, treat him like a a Gentile or or tax collector. That's just a euphemism to say, treat him like a non-believer. Now, what does that mean to treat him like a non-believer? This is very serious, right? In essence, Paul is saying, hand this man into the domain of Satan, right? Being part of God's people carries a unique blessing. I mean, we're gathered here today. Right, we're God's people for the most part we have the same standards of belief and morality we will treat each other with love and respect there's a special covering there's a special care there's a special certain family atmosphere here we're we're safe here this is the point where you've removed that and what happens is this where God uniquely manifests his spirit and his presence amongst us, and particularly when we're gathered like this, brothers and sisters. There's a unique manifestation of his spirit amongst us. When we gather together, all that is removed when you hand someone over to Satan. Satan is the ruler of the world. So in essence, you just hand this person over to the world. Satan is ruthless and unloving. Bible says in John 10.10, 10, 10 he, ca- he came to kill, steal, and destroy. In essence, being part of a church is this experience a slice, a sliver. I know we're looking forward to Thanksgiving in <laughs> those sliver of pie, but this is a sliver of heaven. This is, you're we're experiencing a little bit of heaven, microscopic experience of heaven, because it's going to be unbelievable, unthinkable in the Lord's presence. But when you hand someone over to Satan, you're allowing them to experience a slice of hell, thinking this is not good. This is, it's called discipline. Because we don't want people to experience a full wrath of hell, the full weight of hell. This is just a sliver of hell. This is much more loving. This is loving. This is love. And this is for the destruction of the flesh, people could experience physical issues. People in the Bible have gotten sick, gotten boils. You could experience emotional turmoil. King Saul experienced emotional turmoil in the Old Testament. We could even, this could even lead to certain serious illness and death. Later on in 1 Corinthians, people who were taking communion in an unworthy manner were dying. In the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira were dropped dead. I mean, God takes these things seriously. But the idea is not to destroy this person. The idea is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We don't want them to experience the full weight of hell. This is is a sliver. This is what's loving. Now, you may be sitting here like, man, Pastor, Pastor Rocky, is this right? Would God do this? I mean, would God use our chief enemy, our arch enemy to discipline us? Well, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul knew from experience. He goes, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul had so much revelation. He even actually went to heaven for either in... In, in actuality or in a vision, he experienced heaven it's to keep me from exalting myself to feeling, feeling puffed up. Bible says that he was given a thorn in the flesh. This word, thorn in the flesh, is not like the garden variety of, of the thorns that you get in your, in your rose bushes. This is like a stake driven to Paul. And what was this thorn in the flesh, a stake in the flesh? A messenger of Satan. This word messenger is angelos, an angel Satan, a demon A demon was allowed to go to Paul to keep him from exalting himself. In the book of Job, in the book of Job, God allows Satan to do work on Job. He just said, just don't kill him. And sure enough, Job goes through some horrible, horrific things. But at the end, in verse 42, verse 5 and 6, Job says, I understand now. I could see and hear now. I understand and I repent of my ways. God purified even someone like Job, Job, who many of us would consider pretty holy to begin with. But even Job, God purified even more. And it's for restoration. So the answer is yes, God does use Satan. Remember this. I just want to have a little side note, sidebar here. Satan and Jesus aren't like rivals, like, man, this is a battle, a cosmic battle. No, 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 no. God is God. God is sovereign. God is, Jesus is Lord. He will use Satan as his agent to get what he needs to get done, all right? And so, yes, he does use even Satan to purify his people. Let's go to the third, third W. What? The third W is what? What is church discipline for? What is church discipline for? The fill in the blank, it preserves the holiness of the church. Preserves the holiness of the church. I'm going to read a little bit of verse 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? That's verse 6, question mark. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Paul uses a baking illustration here. I I don't know if you guys are any bakers out here. My girls are starting to get into that a little bit. He makes a baking illustration where, as I, I did some studying in this area, right? And so I even studied or watched this video where this baker has had a starter. You may ask, what is a starter, Pastor? A starter is basically a, a lump of dough that you keep, and it ferments, and that serves as a rising agent, all right? That starter, you basically you mix it into the new batch, you take out a scoop, and you put it in the Tupperware and leave it in your fridge. And this man's claimed to have a starter that lasted for 70 years, <laughs> okay? 70 years. That's some good fermentation going on there. Boudins, like th- th- that famous uh, sourdough company in San Francisco, they claim that their starter has been around since the gold rush in the mid-1800s, is that right? Someone's nodding their head here, and I learned that. I just read that, so I can't claim to be an expert on that. But that's a long time. So in the old days and ancient days, this is how they baked bread. They didn't have yeast out of that yellow packet that you put in your bread to rise your bread, right, Lauren? They had to create their starter, and they would mix up their batch of dough, keep a hunk of it, and store it someplace. And they would use that week after week. And, and that, that starter would just ferment, and all the good stuff will happen there. And they would introduce it into the new batch, and then it would rise. Now, the problem here is this. This man who had 70 years of a starter in his family passed down, he has a refrigerator. And I noticed it was a nice Tupperware that you could screw the top on. I don't think they had that in the ancient days. So what would happen is this. Dirt, bacteria, disease get in there. And in essence, when you reintroduce that starter into that new dough, it just corrupts that new batch. No good. No good. So Paul's making that illustration for the Corinthian church. And leaven is the rising agent in bread, but leaven is analogous or a picture of sin. So when you allow this sin to just stay within the church, within the dough, it permeates and just causes things to be influenced by that sinful behavior. He says, do you not know? All right, do you not know? It's like this is common sense. Do you not know? You should know this by now. That a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Don't you know this this by allowing this sin to be here, it influences the whole church. It's going to corrupt the holiness of the Corinthian church, not just this person. That's a problem. That's a problem. What happens is this, when, you, when we do not address sin in our church, that's widely known, that's significant, that's unrepentant, you know what happens? The rise of hypocrisy grows in our church. The rise of hypocrisy grows in our church. Hypocrisy is being fake, disingenuine, just to show, just to front. Or when you're a part of a group that you know you're not part of something real, there's something very demoralizing about that. And this is where church discipline keeps things clean. Church discipline preserves the holiness of the church. Stephen Um, this is a writer, a commentator on First Corinthians, and writes one of the things that is hard, the most, the, the hardest is the, the most is hypocrisy isn't it? This discipline keeps us from that. It keeps us real and it keeps us authentic, but it also keeps us healthy and healthy. This is what Stephen um says. And look at verse seven. This is where the, this whole chapter just explodes with a lot of hope. Chapter, at the end of chapter, verse, not, uh, verse seven and eight is where the explosion takes place here. Otherwise, this could just be a moralistic message. like, all right, let's just keep each other in line. Let's just be legalistic. Let's become a bunch of Pharisees. This is not it. This is not it. This is where the power is at. Verse 7 and 8. So pay attention here. Verse 7 says, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. What is Paul saying there? Just as, in fact, you are unleavened. Paul is saying, you are holy. You're a saint. You've been set apart. Don't you remember who you are? God sees you as holy, set apart, sinless. That's who we are in Christ. And look what it says. For Christ, because Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. He's reminding the Corinthian church that we are holy because Christ, the Holy One, died for us. This is the key here. To always remember the critical nature of holiness and to keep church discipline as a priority of our church is this. To remember who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us. What did Christ do for us? Christ became our Passover. Just a little bit of context for those of us who aren't sure what Passover is. This is an Old Testament uh, 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 event that took place. The Israelites, the Jewish people, were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God graciously said, I'm going to free my people from Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years. And God, in order to free them from Egypt, performed 10 miraculous, miraculous uh, plagues against Egypt. And the 10th and final plague was the most serious one where God will send the angel of death to kill every firstborn male. So if you're a firstborn male in your family, I'm the second, so I probably don't have to worry about that. But if you're a firstborn male, even if you're the youngest, you're still the firstborn male. You would be in, in this, but your dad was, and mom were told to, all right, let's slaughter our land and put blood on the lentils in the doorposts of your home, and then the angel death will, will pass over your house and show you grace and mercy. So... You have nothing to worry about. I'm sure that's what happened in your family. But so, this is where Christ becomes the new Passover for us. Where the angel death is no longer just death on earth, but judgment apart from God forever in a place called literal hell. Where Christ, God, the eternal one, died for us. His blood covers us if you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Where he said, Jesus. I know I've done things that are not right. I know I've offended you and others. I need to trust in your blood that was shed for me on the cross. I want to trust in you, Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus covers us with his blood, and the judgment is passed over us. Jesus was sacrificed for our salvation. This is what we're talking about, where we escape hell. This is a real thing. But secondly, before we even get there, because when we see Christ for the first time, right now we know, the Bible says, we know in part, but we'll know in full. When we see him, we'll be fully sanctified, fully holy like them. Not just positionally, but actually functionally too. Because right now, I don't feel holy all the time. The thoughts that run through my mind, the things that I say, the things that I do, aren't exactly perfectly Christ-like. Can you relate to me what I'm talking about? But our Lord died for our salvation, but also for our sanctification. In Christ, we are saints. This is where the power is at when we understand our identity in Christ. And this is what allows us to say, you know what? Church discipline is important because we help each other stay true to our Lord. We we help each other stay true to the call that God's given us. And in verse 8, it says this. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Celebrate Christ. Christ is our Passover feast. Celebrate Christ. We are in Christ. Let's celebrate not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. It's not compatible. Jesus and sin is not compatible. Jesus, Sin and Christian, Christians, that, it just doesn't go well. It's not meant to be. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, genuineness, genuineness before God and before his people. That's what gets people fired up to live for Christ. When you're around other brothers and sisters, you know what, they're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but you know what, we all genuinely are on this pursuit of holiness. That's when a church explodes because now we're we're looking at each other, looking at our Lord, saying, I'm a part of something real. Hypocrisy will kill you. Hypocrisy will kill you. Genuineness being genuine before the Lord, genuine and holy before the Lord, being true to the Lord is what would just allow our church to be, be continue to be built up in Christ. Let's go to point number four, the fourth W. Fourth W is who, as in which person, who. So who is church discipline for, is that question. Who is church discipline for? It's for the church body. Church body. Fill in the blank. Church body. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says, I didn't say that you couldn't hang out with everybody because that means that the world is full of all kinds of non-believers and the world is full of sinful people. Otherwise, we'd have to not work. (laughs) We'd have to not go to school. We can't go to the gyms. We couldn't couldn't hang out with our neighbors down the street. God, God isn't saying, oh, I can't hang out with sinners. This is prescribed for those who are in the church. Right? Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, any professing believer, any professing member of this church at Evergreen is what Paul is talking about. Now, we drove 18 hours nonstop, stop and driving and amazing what some coffee amazing what a couple pit stops and sunflower seeds could do for you while you're driving. I mean <laughs> sunflowers. flowers oh, we're driving and I was pretty good for the first four hours. Then we're, and then we got into Oregon. I started yawning and tears, started coming down. i pull over to the gas station, get some food, breakfast, burritos. And it was early, so we're going. And we're driving. And in Oregon, just so you guys might have read already or heard, that now in Oregon, they just passed legislation where it's okay to possess things such as heroin and cocaine now, just so you know that. And that's kind of like the stream that's coming up to Washington where, they're, well, let's explore this idea next year for us. Like, that's what's happening. All right, just so you know. And for us, we should be alarmed like, wow, that's, that's not good. Right, that's not good. But the problem is this. When we judge the world harder than ourselves and we soft-pedal our own sin, that's the issue. Of course, you could be upset. Of course, you could be alarmed, but... Are we more alarmed when the world acts as the world or when the church acts as the world? We should be way more alarmed when, the, oh, that's not right. The church is holy. The church is precious. Even such things as slander, gossip, laziness, pornography, those these sort of things are incompatible with the church. We should be more alarmed if those things are rampant happening in our church than if The world legalizes owning or possessing heroin and cocaine. The world, do not be surprised when the world is acting like the world. The world is our mission field, right? That's why we're here. That's why God didn't just pull us up into heaven as soon as we became a Christian. God has a work for you and me until we get called to be with the Lord forever and eternity. So let's just get down to some practical Things about this. What would this look like? What does it look like when someone gets handed over to Satan? What does this look like? First of all, this is not an everyday thing, okay, guys? This is not like, all right, we're going to step number four. Hopefully, we never have to go through this, but it happened in Corinth. It happens in other churches. there's, There's a chance it could happen here as well. And this is about restoration. This is not a punitive thing. This is not like a punishment thing. And when we're healthy, we're probably exercising step number one and two regularly. Like, hey, brother, I saw this other day. You're right. I'm sorry. Hey, sister, hey, uh, I heard you speak this way. Is everything okay? You know, you're right. Let me repent of that. that. That's when you know you're healthy, church. Just amongst our the network of friends and relationships, close relationships that we have here, that's just happening. We're just keeping each other in line before we get to step two, three, and four, right? I mean, that's where... That's when you know we're a healthy church. When that issues of sin are just nipped at the bud when it's still young, right? Weeds are easier to handle when you just pull out a little thing. You let that thing sit for years, I mean, it could become an actual tree, you know? Those things are harder to, to deal with. But what does this look like when we get to this fourth and final stage of church restoration called church discipline or excommunication? Bible says right here, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called believer. If he is an immoral person or a covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. What does that mean? Pastor, I want to obey God, but what does that mean? I don't want to do anything beyond what the Bible says. Absolutely not. Associate means to mix in or to, to mingle with. This is that idea. You were mixing in. You know, kind of like that batch of dough and leaven. You know, you're mixing people in with one another. These are the things that 9 Marks will talk about. Number one, they're denied the Lord's table. That's communion. Someone in an unrepentant situation should not be taking communion because the Bible says, do not take communion in an unworthy manner unworthy manner means you're harboring some kind of sin that's unrepentant so we should not be taking communion number two they should be denied serving in the local church because it creates confusion for the rest of the body like hmm we know what's going on there why is that person allowed to do that still All Right. number three Denied regular social gatherings. What, what does that mean? Can you not not talk to some people? No, I, I don't think that's what it means. Other than it's not business as usual. Hey, what's up? It's, it's all good. No, no, no. There's always a sense of if, let's have a coffee, let's have a meal, but there's always a sense of like, hey, let's repent, let's talk. Right? An appeal that everything is not okay. Fourthly, I, I think, I believe that People in this situation should be allowed to gather on the Lord's Day because now people are able to hear the gospel regularly, right? So this is a very serious thing our Lord calls us to do because he loves his church. He loves his church. So in conclusion, church discipline is a gracious gift from God. This is not a punitive thing. This is not like, wow, God is unloving, unmerciful. This is a loving thing. This is an eternal thing. There's so much at stake here, and it produces a healthy, self-correcting ecosystem of our church, where we just this naturally happens, right? Let me just read you Second Corinthians here. I'm going to give you maybe some hope and some encouragement. What happened in this situation? Perhaps some many commentators are in disagreement if this section is talking about this this incestuous person or. This is talking about another situation. But the, the point is, the heart of it is this. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. The majority of the church excommunicated somebody. Verse 7. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. wherefore I urge you to reaffirm our love for him. This is talking about a a repentant person. Bring him back. Welcome. We've been praying for you. We're like the prodigal father. Yes, we're coming for you. You're repentant. Welcome back. Let's get you back going again. See, church restoration is a two-way street. Yes, there's a sinner, but on the other side of the street is the one forgiving. The church needs to be a forgiving church. I like the way this its kind of just been bouncing around in my heart for a couple months now, is that Evergreen SUV needs to be the worst place to sin. Why? Because you will be confronted, hopefully in step one, interpersonally. If it need be, step four. However, Evergreen SUV needs to be the best place to sin. Because when you repent... When you repent, you will be welcomed back with open arms. This is what church is about because of Christ Jesus, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray, Father, for any of us who are here right now who are in some kind of a sin, who will call themselves Christians, that your spirit will move them to repent, Lord, And they'll be restored fully into the fellowship, Lord. I pray for these brothers and sisters. I pray they would know the full power of the gospel that says we are saints and we are holy. In Christ, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Father, I pray also for those here and listening that have not trusted themselves to you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, that your spirit will prick their hearts right now. And they will f- know that they need to come to you and to receive the free gift of salvation that is offered through your son Jesus Christ. That they will say, I know I'm a sinner and I know God that you will judge me. But I know God that you love me so much that you died for me on the cross and you took on my punishment and that you died and you are alive again. I want to trust you as my Lord, follow you as my Lord and believe in you as my Savior. I repent, I turn away from my old sinful ways and turn to you, Jesus, as my Lord. So thank you, Father, for this message of hope. Although it's a tough message, it shows your heart that you care deeply for us. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.